This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the final session of People Get Ready 3, Build It On Up, Tools for the Fight. My name is Rachel Herzing. I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Political Education, and I'm very honored to moderate this session today. Um, By way of describing myself, I am a light-skinned Black woman. I am um, wearing a black and white sweatshirt that reads Center for Political Education, wearing green glasses, and my curly hair, curly black hair, is up in Afro puffs. I'm sitting in front of a bunch of books of various kinds and shapes, um, and that is who I am. I want to give extra thanks to our captioners, to Joyce, to our interpreters, Alexia and Jen, and Nora, Joy, and Brandon. Thank you for all your work. So we have spent most of the day today talking about how to build left power in this period and how to move beyond simply defense and resistance. Um, How many of us feel comfortable though, thinking or confident maybe is a better way to say that, thinking about how to do that and what we need. Let's be honest, all of us need to keep sharpening our skills and our tools all the time. So for this session, we're we're joined by some people who I trust implicitly to help us think about what we need to build in this period and how. Um, They're going to help us think about how to put put ourselves in best fighting form for the future to build that power we've been talking about. We're not going to suggest that these are the only things that we'll need to work on, the things that get raised in this session. But I think they'll be a great start and will help us get really um, excited about how to be even more prepared going forward. So I want to introduce our speakers today. We're joined by Jennifer Marley of the Red Nation. The Red Nation is a coalition of Native and non-Native activists, educators, students, and community organizers advocating Native liberation. They have people working with them across the so-called United States and are always a great model for all of us for how to work on local issues within internationalist politics. So we're very happy to have Jen with us. Marisol Ocampo is joining us from Left Roots, a national organization that is developing the individual and collective skills they believe are necessary to formulate, evaluate, and carry out strategy to build what they describe as 21st century socialism. At Center for Political Education, we're always impressed by the work that Left Roots puts into preparing people to analyze conditions and develop strategy. And again, welcome to Marisol. And finally, um, Sabiha Basrai is joining us from Design Action Collective, and Sabiha is also a community advisor for the center, so I need to stick that in there too. Um, Design Action Collective is a Bay Area-based, worker-owned and managed cooperative and a union graphic design and visual communication shop. 
They're making some of the most beautiful and powerful movement graphics out there today, if you ask me. And they make a mean website, too. So we will start with um, having each speaker respond to a question that I'm about to pose. Um, we'll begin with Marisol. We'll move on to Jen. And then we'll wrap up with Sabiha. Um, and then we'll have some time for them to be in discussion. And then we'll also have some time if any of you who are listening in, watching in, have questions or ideas you want to share with the speakers, please put those in the chat and um, in the comment section of the, of the live stream feed, and we can um, address those as we're able. Um, so I want to just give our speakers a warning and everybody who's tuning in a warning that if somebody starts to go really, really long, I'm going to interrupt probably, okay? And that I want to foreground by saying that is no disrespect to the speakers. I've, I love all of the work you all do, but I want to make sure we're saving time for anything that the um, people who are tuning in want to add as well. So here's the question I'm hoping each of you can take up at the beginning here. As we move from defensive to offensive postures in our struggles, what is a key skill or tool that's important for organizers and activists to develop to help us move beyond resistance and toward building power? And any examples you want to provide from your own organization's work here are very, very welcome. So Marisol, I'll turn things over to you. Thank you, Rachel. Hi, folks. Um, I will attempt to answer the question, but before I want to share a little bit more about who I am, so you have a context to know where um, my spiel is coming from. Um, again, my name is Marisol Ocampo Munoz, and um, I'm an aspiring cadre and a member of Left Roots. I am Native American from the Tongva tribe, actually, and it was the first time where I heard um, interpreters shouting out the native languages they are in. So thank you. That definitely warmed my heart. And um, my family actually migrated south uh, to Mexico City in the 30s. And so I was born and raised in Mexico City to a communist family. And so I was what some people call a red diaper baby. I was born into the movement. And my teenage uh, rebellion looked like coming out to my parents as an anarchist and telling them that instead of studying philosophy or something related to social sciences, I was going to be a doctor. <laughs> but that actually backfired because uh, in order for me to be an anarchist in a communist household, I had to train myself. I have to really understand what anarchism was, the different theories, the different strategies, the histories where it had been applied. And it was actually through that process that I realized that I was more of a socialist than an anarchist, mostly because socialism allowed me to be in dialogue with all the current or at the time socialist experiments that were happening in Latin America. And it actually also allowed me to be in more dialogue and have a broader base for solidarity and unity with people from many other political traditions. And so I, I eventually 
you know, said, okay, you guys, you had something good stuff to say. Um, so I always say like, I'm an anarchist at heart, but a socialist in the practice. And um, I ended up uh, becoming for my own sake, committed to revolution and figuring out how to make it happen. In 1999, when I joined the student strike that was happening in Mexico City, and it was a, it was a almost a one year long strike, and there was a wave of repression uh, following the strike, and so my parents literally forced me into a plane so that I would leave Mexico City and be in the United States for a little bit. And since then, I've been working to with many different types of organizational vehicles from cadre organizations, movement intermediaries, collectives, study groups, space building organizations, etc. Both in Mexico and in the United States. I was in California for a while. I am now based in Pennsylvania. I live in rural Pennsylvania. And so um, Lefferts has been around since 2014, and part of our efforts are developing, like Rachel said in the intro, the capacities that we think are needed to develop and test liberatory strategy. And so for this, we developed a strategy toolkit. And so we think that it is essential that for us to move from uh, defensive to offensive or from resistance to power, it is important that we are grounded in what we mean by some of the most commonly thrown around terms in the left. And sometimes we use the same word to describe like six different things. So the strategy toolkit is our attempt to really engage in conversation and try to extract and articular, articulate as concretely and concisely as possible what we mean when we say words like vision, like strategy. A component of our um, strategy toolkit is the conjunctural analysis, and that's the piece that I'm going to be focusing on. So just before I, I dive into conjunctural analysis as a tool, I'm going to share some of the premises um, that we base our work on. We believe that liberatory strategy must be grounded in a clear vision of toppling capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy, and establishing a liberated society. This vision then provides a basis for assessing which sectors of society are most likely to support revolutionary change and which are most likely to oppose it, thereby guiding us to focus our finite resources in the most effective way. And now, like I said, vision is one of those words that some people use to talk about a futuristic utopia. Some people call it or use it to talk about the details of how a liberated society would feel like, would look like, right? And I bet most of us on this goal have done those visioning exercises where somebody has you close your eyes and imagine what does it feel like to walk down the street in a liberated society. Those are all important things to figure out, but they're also very distinct. And so what we 
are referring to when we use vision is that we want to focus on shaping the vision of the economic base of a liberated society. And we definitely draw heavily from the homie, Karl Marx, and uh, his framework of the base and the superstructure, right? And this framework, which is also another important tool, it really implores revolutionaries to transform the foundations that underlie the economic system as we maneuver to create new political and cultural systems. And so uh, the tool really aims to help us develop a clear vision of an economic system that makes putting people and planet first, both possible and sustainable. And so um, the second part of our toolkit, uh, the first one is the vision. The second part is the structural analysis. And folks might be more familiar with this one. This is about uh, building an analysis of the economic base of our current systems, right? The mechanical foundation on which our society rests. And this part is about uh, gaining an understanding of the fundamental and key contradictions that shape the conjunctural terrain, right? And it reveals choke points, contradictions, possible crises, all of which then impact our strategic orientation. The next part of the toolkit is a conjunctural analysis. I'll come back to it. The fourth part is revolutionary strategy. And this is the piece that brings all the previous pieces together and asks us to map out the possible stages of a revolutionary road that take us from our current conditions to socialist liberation. It helps us identify what forces need to be assembled and what they need to accomplish in any given phase in order to reach the next and eventually to win 21st century socialism. The next part of the toolkit is the hypotheses. And this is helping us to even just learn how to put one together. How do we articulate a hypothesis or a basic assertion that we think is correct and that is necessary in order for the revolutionary strategy to be accurate? Talking action without a clear hypothesis that tests a key piece of our strategic orientation can lead to doing things that don't actually move us effectively and powerfully toward 21st century socialism. I know I don't have a lot of time left, so I'm going to try to speed through. <laughs> There's a scenario planning component of our toolkit, the situational strategy, the hypothesis, which we revisited again at this stage, your tactical plan and action, and then your evaluation. I will not describe the rest in as much detail as I have, so I can go back and focus on the conjunctural analysis. So, um, like vision and structure, conjecture is also a bit of a movement jargon. And it is not a word that's used a lot, like at a bus stop or nail salons, but definitely within the left. Um, there's a tendency to conflate conjuncture with revolutionary strategy and scenario planning. 
there is, or at least there should be a strong connection, but there is a difference. And this part of the toolkit distinguishes um, those three yet very important uh, parts of a strategy toolkit. So conjunctural analysis reveals how the crisis and contradictions of capitalism are manifesting and unfolding in this moment. So rather than it being a static picture, a conjunctural analysis offers insights to what is shifting and how and what those shifts mean for advancing a revolutionary struggle. And it, it could be too much. Uh, it focuses so much in understanding what's changing and an analysis of a conjuncture for us draws heavily in our skill of using dialectical materialism in order to be able to make actual grounded assessments of what is happening and how it is changing. And so we also draw heavily from the Jamaican-born Marxist Stuart Hall, and he reminds us when a conjuncture unrolls, there's no going back, right? History shifts gears, the terrain keeps going, keeps changing, whether we are able to understand it or not, it keeps moving. So our struggles take place in our current conditions, not in ideal conditions, not in abstract conditions, not in the conditions of some of the theories that lived in other countries, in other eras, right? And so Stuart Hall points us to the role of conjunctural analysis uh, in his essay, Gramsci and Us, which is another tool that I highly recommend for everybody. And he says, Gramsci gives us not the tools with which to solve the puzzle, but the means with which to ask the right kinds of questions about politics. He does so by directing our attention to what is specific and different about this moment. And so analyzing the conjuncture is not simply lifting all the things that you see going on with the world but it's an attempt to actually make sense of all the things going on in the world at the moment, some of which might be things we see and others might be things we don't, right? So that we can identify the essential features of what's going on in society space and superstructure, right? And although not directly a part of this analysis, the conjunctural analysis helps us identify what challenges and opportunities exist at this moment or might be emerging. Uh, the conjunctural analysis sets up by naming how this moment is unique from previous periods. And that's why the conjunctural analysis has to move beyond a simple list of what's going on. To wrap up, at its most basic, conjunctural analysis attempts to answer three questions. What are the contours of the terrain at this moment? What's the nature of the hegemonic block? and what contradictions are driving the development of the key dynamics playing out at this moment that might alter the terrain on which we fight for 21st century socialism. Thank you so much. And if folks are interested, I'm sure we'll have a chance to share um, contact info so you can request a full training of all of our toolkit. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you so much, Marisol. That was fantastic. Jen, I'm going to turn things over to you now. Great. Thank you for having me. Um, so will, will I be sharing the slides or will they be shared? Um, 
Square Tech folks. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, I think Sean is going to share your slides, so I think you just need to tell Sean when you when you need that. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so you had to put the first uh, slide up in just a bit after I introduced myself. So my name is Jennifer Marley. Um, I'm from the Pueblo of San Aldefonso. Um, I'm Tewa from um, northern New Mexico. Um, and I joined the Red Nation upon um, attending the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, about an hour south of um, my homeland. And um, uh, the background that I wanted to give is mostly just about um, the Red Deal itself and how we have used the Red Deal as a platform, not only, um, not only a political platform, but a community organizing platform. The way we see the Red Deal, understand the Red Deal, is that it can be used for a multitude of things. It can be a platform that is taken up by a tribal leader, for example, or somebody um, running for a position within a municipality. It can be used, um, it can be taken up by uh, senators, congresspeople. Um, but uh, most of all, we hope that the Red Deal can be a tool for building people power. And um, early on when we started our Red Deal launches, um, we would present it in rural communities and um, border towns to um, help engage people and give them confidence in organizing um, amongst themselves and organizing around the issues that impact them the most. Um, so I'm just gonna jump right in and um, Sean, if you could pull up the first slide. Please, thank you. So um, I want to also let people know that um, this uh, presentation and the way the Red Deal is written, it is written um, specifically for um, people who are um, impacted the most by um, resource extraction, by um, the unequal impoverishment that you know we face under capitalism, and I'm um, really um, just. Our, our, our relatives, um, we have this saying, if your grandma or your auntie can't understand what we're trying to say, then who is it for? So, um, yeah, we have some little inside jokes um, sparse throughout it. So, um, yeah. Are the are this slides up? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so if we can move on to the first slide after the uh, first page. Um, so it says, it's not the new red deal because it's the same old deal. Um, so what, what we mean by that is what we're proposing isn't necessarily new in that we are drawing on our traditions of resistance to colonialism. We are drawing on our communal ways of living and existing that we believe um, are that we believe, um, we understand ourselves as indigenous people showing us some of the first um, practices of socialism. Um, and that's how we articulate socialism to our relatives. So um, background, um, a little bit of background about how the Red Deal came to be. So um, 
it really comes down to Standing Rock. When we were all at Standing Rock, um, we knew that this that marked a dawn of a new point in Indigenous environmental struggles, but really um, struggles for um, Indigenous liberation in general. And we saw it as a moment for us to take that momentum and push it forward in terms of mass movement building. So um, another thing I want to make clear is that the Red Deal is not... Um, necessarily opposing the Green New Deal, um, but rather it is proposing an entirely new platform or entirely different platform, I should say. Um, It is inspired by the Black abolitionist movement and the Movement for Black Lives platform, um, which calls for an invest-divest movement, um, divesting from prisons, police, fossil fuel surveillance, and exploitative corporations, and instead investing back into our communities. So um, the Red Deal is not a document that seeks the approval of higher powers like elected corporation or elected officials, corporations, CEOs, or celebrities, but it's for the bottom, the rowdy, the rugged, still learning, um, you know, activists, organizers, everyday people, the defenders of the land. Um, next slide, please. So our four areas of struggle. Um, are what creates crisis cannot solve it, change from below and to the left. Politicians can't do what only mass movements can do and from theory to action. So I'll start with what creates crisis cannot solve it. So the Red Deal continues these calls for divestment um, that we saw coming out of Standing Rock. And, um, but we take it one step further. Like we, like I said, we draw from um, black abolitionist traditions to call for divestment away from caging, criminalizing, and the harming of human beings, and from the exploitative and extractive violence of fossil fuels. And with the resources we gain from this divestment, we can literally end world hunger tomorrow, illiteracy, child hunger, homelessness, and build renewable energy tomorrow. Um, because the crisis of capitalism sees that these resources, you know, are not distributed equally. And with something like the military budget alone, um, these issues like homelessness, like child hunger could be resolved within a day. Um, we have a saying within the Red Deal, it says, what if, uh, what if the army had to hold, host a bake sale uh, just to fund itself the way language programs do, the way um, shelters do? And so, um, and again, the title, um, it, it refers to the way, the fact that we can, like, if we understand the state and its motives um, as being about protecting capital, we cannot depend on it to solve the crisis it creates. Uh, so the second area of struggle is change from below and to the left. So since no dapple. 16 states have passed anti-protest laws, um, with 20 more currently considering similar laws. And this backlash proves that the people who demand a dignified life threaten the powerful. People power is the most direct form of democracy, even if it's not manifesting in a situation like the no dapple protest. So how do we get things to change? Lobby Congress and politicians? No. 
we reach out directly to our people, hitting the streets and galvanizing support, the support of the community. Once community support is established, politicians will follow, and they always do follow. They respond to us when we move. Our leverage is people, and leverage comes from a movement behind you. Only when people move do we build enough power to force concessions and eventually win. Three, politicians can't do what only mass movements can do. Reform typically means asking the powerful to implant gradual changes that we hope will eventually improve our lives. This approach attempts to treat the symptoms of crisis rather than the structures of power that create crisis in the first place. The types of reform we seek include the complete moratorium on oil and gas, and coal extraction, the restoration of indigenous land, water, and air to a healthy state, and special protections for workers and the land. These non-reformist reforms, as we call them, are crucial to achieving abolition, decolonization, and liberation. Four, from theory to action. We cannot simply be against something. And I think that this is... Um, what really speaks to um, the main prompt that we're talking about today. How do we move um, from defensive to offensive position in our movement building? So that's something that we always carry at the core of what we do. It is not enough to simply be against something. We must be for something. And by fighting for these non-reformist reforms in and with our most vulnerable communities, we will drain power and resources from the state uh, from the state and uh, surveillance and harm and reinvest in these resources and the well-being of all. We will regain our collective power. We will be inspired by a vision for the future that will outpace this state at every turn. We will be able to capture the moment of the next rebellion and catapult it into a full-blown mass movement. We will fight for the redistribution of wealth stolen from us, whether it's land, air, or labor. And so um, we talk a lot about in the Red Deal about caretaking, you'll see that term a lot, and about kinship. And this is how we um, envision and frame our solidarity through a queer indigenous feminist lens. Um, and I think, again, that, that spirit really speaks to the prompt today um, because we understand that we have to actively build the world we want to live in. It's not enough to destroy this world that is currently anti-life, as we say. So um, within that, there are three areas of struggle. And within the three areas of struggle, there are 20 specific issues. So um, the first area of struggle is any occupation, which is part one of the Red Deal, if you visit our website. Um, and within that, we have um, other specific issues, um, defund the police, La Migra, CPS, and border town violence, abolish incarceration, end U.S. military occupation everywhere, abolish imperial borders. And um, eight, heal our bodies, is actually the largest section of the Red Deal. And I won't, I won't read every, um, every um, specific issue here, but um, among those, uh, what we consider healing our body includes free education for everyone, free health care, um, clean air and water, an end to sexual domestic violence, reproductive justice, um, suicide prevention, and non-carceral mental health services for all. Um, so 
these issues, which um, people typically don't um, frame within the context of healing or relate directly to our bodies, we are, um, you know, trying to make that connection there and remind people that, you know, this is always a part of class struggle. And that, and then also helping people to understand um, the significance of having a good analysis of our material conditions. Um, and then the third one, Heal Our Planet, includes um, of the specific issues, um, advocating for clean and sustainable energy, traditional and sustainable agriculture, land, air, water, and animal restoration, protection of sacred sites, and the enforcement of treaty rights and other agreements. So something that I really like to emphasize on this one is that um, the, uh, things like food sovereignty and having the ability to farm on your own land and even just engaging in the practice of um, farming itself or hunting or um, you know food and resource propagation in whatever ways um, Native nations have historically done that is very much... Uh, it's a labor issue. Um, and uh, I think it needs to be understood within the context of labor. Um, for me, it took me a long time to understand that. I always kind of thought it was like a wishy-washy um, way to engage in um, struggle, if it was even struggle. But now I understand that um, this is one way to revive our subsistence economies, um, which we hope will provide um, you know, the alternative to capitalism today. And um, that's what really what we're interested in building. We're interested in building these alternatives. And Red Nation so far, um, this year in particular, has primarily been engaging in care work, um, which can also be seen, understood as survival work. So um, having weekly community feeds, um, focusing on distribution and the protection of our unsheltered relatives who um, in a border town like Albuquerque are primarily indigenous and um, making sure that their needs are met when the state inevitably fails them in a time of crisis like this with the pandemic. Um, so it's that care work, it's that survival work that um, we've shifted to focusing on as the need presents itself. And these mutual aid networks that are being built, uh, we believe actually um, kind of represent a light at the end of the tunnel, showing us possibilities for um, building alternative economies, people-based economies um, that can sustain us um, when we want to um, look away, not look away from the state, but when we know that the state cannot meet our needs. And so I want to end um, talking about um, another slogan that is used in the Red Deal, and this was um, a slogan that um, was used for our Native Liberation Conference last year, and that is decolonization or extinction, uh, which can seem kind of morbid, and it is. It's more than a catchy slogan. It does, in fact, reflect our material reality. Um, we don't have much time left before um, the, all the thresholds are reached in terms of um, our planet's inability to heal itself again in time to sustain life as we know it. Um, so with this, we also say we cannot simply build isolated utopias while the rest of the world burns, nor can we wait for the slow process.
process of reformers reform to kick in. We cannot simply heal our individual trauma, nor can we consume better to save the environment. We cannot vote harder and place all our hope in a few individuals in Congress. Climate change will kill us before any of these struggles liberate the planet from capitalism. And so um, we encourage this sense of urgency with that slogan, but we also uh, want to remind people that it is these structures of caretaking and kinship um, that historically and presently are allowing us to build these futures outside of capitalist uh, relations. Um, and it is something that we're actively doing in practice. It is something that we theorize about, which is very important, but it's something that we're actually also trying to live and incorporate into our way of life and a way of life that for many of indigenous people well, um, like I said, it's not new. Um, so I will go ahead and end there since I know my time is coming up. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. Um, I'm going to pass things over to Sabiha. And Jen, we've heard you have a little bit of noise in the background there. So um, if you're able to either address what's running in the back or mute yourself, that would be helpful when you're not. Okay. Talking. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, Sabiha, turn over to you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Sabiha. I use she, her pronouns. Um, coming to you from a cozy living room. I'm a Muslim American um, daughter of South Asian immigrants and a member of Design Action Collective. And today I want to share some of our strategies and tactics that I've had success with um, when we think about tools for advancing our work. And Sean, are you able to start with the first slide? And Rachel, can you give me a thumbs up if you can see that slide? Just since I'm great. Um, so Sean, go ahead and advance the slide to the cornerstone squares. And this is a tool that I always love to come back to as a designer. Um, the Center for Story-Based Strategy is a wonderful organization that Design Action Collective often collaborates with. And this tool is something that I really try and keep in the forefront of every new project. Every time I start to work on a new um, campaign, I want to ask first, what is our goal? What are we trying to achieve? And try and be as specific as possible. Um, as well as what is, who is our audience? And who are the people that we most need to reach in this moment, that we most need to persuade? And then also, who is our target? Who is the decision maker that can make um, this desired change happen? And no, sometimes our target and our audience are the same people, but sometimes they are not. And also, of course, who is our constituency? Who are the folks who are already in our corner, who are organized and you know, ready to roll with us? Um, so whenever we start this work, whether it's a specific campaign or a long-term organizational base building pro program, um, come back to these four questions and help, um, help them keep you accountable to uh, what you're trying to create. So when we think about art and design and visuals and graphics and websites and social media pieces, um, this is, this is a, the foundation. 
So I want to show you uh, one case study. And Sean, if you could move forward to the next slide. These are photographs of hundreds of people protesting at the Indian consulate in San Francisco earlier this year before the COVID lockdown. Um, the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, and his fascist party called the BJP had escalated its attacks on Muslims and other minorities in the country. And this was a powerful action that was most relevant to first generation immigrants from all over South Asia and the subcontinent. People who understood Indian politics, knew the names of certain laws, and were familiar with the names of revolutionary activists and political prisoners in India. Um, some of them even identified with the Indian flag, uh, as you can see in the photo, but some were Kashmiris who had knew what it meant to live under Indian military occupation and absolutely did not identify with the Indian flag. So there was no unified message. Uh, there was anger and resistance to a multitude of issues and it was, a, it was powerful for those who understood those issues. Um, and the action did mean something to folks in the, str um, the struggle on the ground in India to see that their diaspora was with them. But it was unclear who the audience was. Was it the Indian consulate workers? Was it the neighbors that lived in that area of San Francisco? It was missing a clear visual element that could tie all those voices together and be easily understood. Next slide. So a few weeks later, I worked with the Alliance of South Asians Taking Action and Equality Labs uh, to plan another action at the Indian Consulate. Uh, we had to keep the pressure up um, uh, over the course of these really difficult days. So we looked at the cornerstones. Our goal here was to demand that South Asian politicians and cultural leaders condemn Modi and his new anti-Muslim immigration law and reject funding and donations that were connected to Modi's fascist Hindu fundamentalist party. Our target were other South Asian organizations, cultural leaders, Indian American politicians like Rukhana and the audience were first and second generation South Asians who were learning about what was happening in India and could help pressure those targets. And our constituency were all these anti-imperialist organizations, anti-fascist organizers who showed up um, to show international solidarity and helped us make the connections between oppressive policies like Trump's Muslim ban and Modi's citizenship law. Next slide. And folks could still bring their own signs, but we anchored the street action with this phrase, stop killing Muslim people in India. So it was not at all unclear what we are protesting. And we could still have layers of content in other signage, but the poster itself was high contrast, easily legible from far away, camera ready, so that everybody could see exactly why we were there. Next slide. And using chalk spray paint, we left the sidewalk covered in phrases like stop genocide in India, stop Hindu fascism. Next slide. So this was an example of taking a pretty complex story and trying to focus it down into a powerful and clear visual image. Next slide. Another example of uh, message and graphics um, to share is the imagery created to protest Trump's Muslim ban. 
some of you may recall the ACLU and other NGOs focused on patriotic imagery uh, like the Statue of Liberty or people wearing, women wearing American flag hijabs, which as a Muslim woman who doesn't wear hijab, but oh, I have so much to say about that. But that is another conversation for another time. Um, as we saw the language around um, protesting the Muslim ban start to emerge, um, we can go to the next slide. We were in conversations with other immigrant rights activists across the country and Design Action understood that the need to connect the idea of resisting the Muslim ban with protesting the militarization of the southern border and demanding sanctuary for all people. Next slide. So these posters were created and then brought to the San Francisco International Airport where it helped activists control the narrative. Um, and we tried not to let, uh, let the media coverage divide us into these good, good immigrant versus bad immigrant binaries. Um, as many of you may remember, the San Francisco airport action to protest the Muslim ban uh, brought together so many people who held that space for days to demand the release of detainees. And throughout that work, the press releases, the media coverage, the interviews that were given really helped unify our larger immigrant rights struggle. And um, for me as a Muslim woman, it helped me politicize other Muslim members of my community and mosque to um, join the larger fight for immigrant rights for all people. Next slide. And as the airport action continued over the next day, um, folks came with their own versions of these posters. So making design uh, pieces that are easy for others to replicate is also something that we think about at Design Action. And just to note, though Trump's power to insti um, institute the Muslim ban was ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court because of this level of protest and response at the airports over that weekend, the Trump administration relented on the green card issue, which uh, would have affected countless more people. Next slide. So I want to close by talking a little bit about appropriation and power. Um, there are so many examples of our stories and, um, and our struggles being co-opted by major corporations and then sold back to us. Next slide. Does everybody remember how Kendall Jenner showed us how to end police brutality by giving cops Pepsi? And Next slide. Um, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so part of me really loves this poster. But there is a whole generation of young women who were politicized by Trump's election, came out to the first women's march, and held this poster thinking that Princess Leia was the one who said this, uh, when it was in fact said by Asada Shakur. Next slide. Um, and as you know, Asada Shakur was a freedom fighter whose legacy of revolutionary work continues to inspire black power struggles today. 
So at best, that poster was a missed opportunity to invite new protesters into the long-term work of, of liberation um, led by Black women. And at worst, it is an erasure of Asada Shakur and, and it minimizes the work of Black leaders today. Next slide. So I'll just close by reminding all of us that as we continue um, our work, as you continue your work in your own communities, um, and you think about the flyer you want to create or the poster you want to distribute, or even the website that maybe you want to build for your organizing needs, always come back to your cornerstones of goal, audience, and constituency and target to inform um, your visuals and your message and be mindful of ways in which that we appropriate each other's stories, um, ask for consent when we are using each other's imagery, and um, just be really mindful of our roles and responsibilities as media makers. So I'll stop there and back to you, Rachel. Thank you all so much. I love tools. <laughs> tools are the best. Um, and I think I, I have a couple things that I'm interested in asking you all. And if there are things that all of you want to ask each other, um, now's the time for that as well. Um, but I wonder if um, Marisol, I could start with you just to ask, you know, like why, why does Left Roots believe that understanding the conjuncture is so crucial to developing um, how we fight. So what, you talked about this a bit, but I'm wondering if you can circle back and remind us, like what is the relationship between the strength of our conjunctural analysis and our capacity to fight most effectively? Part of me is thinking that the answer is in the question, <laughs> because if we don't have a grounded understanding of the actual conditions and a struggle for shared meaning of them. What does it mean that even like particularly with election results, what does a particular result of the election mean for where different parts of the working class are moving? What does it mean that support for Trump increased amongst Black and Latino communities. How are we making sense of that? It's a reality that we might not like, but if we don't grapple with the parts of reality that we don't like, then we're not doing our job. Then we're going to be creating either short-term campaigns, like Jen was talking about, non-reforms and reform fights. We're going to be doing our base building, like... Uh, Sabiha was explaining, perhaps in the wrong places or prioritizing the wrong places uh, and prioritizing the right, the wrong approaches, because we're actually not, we're not starting off from reality and how we're understanding that reality. And the second thing is that a conjunctural analysis is not something that you do by yourself, that you try to do isolated in your room. Conjunctural analysis is a collective process. And uh, we believe in the theory of the second product. So uh, doing a conjunctural analysis is not about producing the right analysis. 
that is one thing that is one product of it but then the second product is the capacities the unity the cohesion the development that happens in that particular group throughout the process of struggling ideologically together to come to a shared understanding of what is happening right now. How are we making sense? So we can identify what are the choke points? What are the things that with our limited capacity and resources should be putting our everything into and ensuring that that is going to make what is not possible today possible tomorrow or in the future. And I think that that's why that's my medium length answer. <laughs> that was excellent. And I appreciate you breaking that down in that level of detail, because, you know, from my perspective, we see a lot of people acting, acting, acting these days without kind of a good analysis of the how and the why and the what for. And so I think what you offered us is a good kind of um, push to be really, really clear in what's animating our struggles, what's motivating our struggle. So, Jen, I want to move to you. Um, we're in a period now where I don't know if you all are experiencing this, but I surely am, where I feel like there's all these platforms out there circulating right now. And um, I think part of what is useful um, about the platforms is, is a lot of the stuff that you described, which is the kind of articulation of the politics, the articulation of, you know, the demands or the recommendations that are coming out. But I guess the question I want to ask is, how does the process of developing a platform itself, what's your sense of how developing the platform itself in the process of doing that work together, how does that also um, contribute to the strength of our overall politics? Yeah, well, um, so the Red Deal was written with a very vast coalition. Um, everybody from youth to elders to um, service workers contributed to actually writing the Red Deal. And so I think um, the way the Red Deal was written, which actually was like a series of like coalition meetings where um, we we literally sat down and identified the issues and then, um, you know, people... Uh, who had expertise in certain areas would research and write uh, specific areas and we'd be in conversation with each other about it. I think those just those spaces alone um, created so many generative possibilities, not only for creating long-lasting relationships with individual organizers and new organizations, um, but for having, but like actually having a space for us to envision, um, you know, the potential of, our solidarity, like what can we actually build and how can we work to see these things uh, become reality? And since then we have, and it's been pretty amazing. I think um, one of the biggest things that I think right now, especially in 2020 is, is huge. And I think sometimes gets underestimated is um, the hope it gives people is people are constantly fighting demoralization right now. And I think those spaces alone, um, they give people a sense of hope and they remind people that they're not alone. They give this sense of kinship and belonging. So I think the process of writing the Red Deal was really beautiful in itself. And um, since then, like I said, we continue these relationships and I think it's inspired people to use the Red Deal 
as their support to continue endeavors, um, you know, wherever they may go. And that was really the goal is that we understand that um, we can't have a platform um, that is a, I guess, like a, a one-all, like where, like we understand that if you care about analyzing the material conditions, um, the needs of community, different communities are going to differ pretty drastically from each other. And so we hope that um, the Red Deal can serve as a guide, but that um, it can also help people um, think more in depth about what is needed where they are and um, give them the confidence to start building wherever they are. Um, like in the, you know, in the case of New Mexico and in, in rural border towns on reservations where there's little to no political scene at all. Um, yeah, did I answer that question thoroughly? Yeah, that was great. Thank you for that, I appreciate it. Thank you. So Biha, moving to you, um, I so appreciated the kind of, you know, the four corners that you offered us as a guide. And honestly, I wish more organizers, you know, started from that place um, in their work. And I'm also wondering about, um, you know, the distinctions that you drew in the kind of two different um, mobilizations that you talked about. And I'm wondering if you can say a bit more about what a really powerful graphic can do sometimes that even like a mass mobilization can't do? Like what is the power in creating visuals, um, particularly in this period, but kind of generally speaking, what's possible there that even like gathering physical bodies up sometimes isn't? Thanks, that's definitely a question that has been on the tops of all of our minds as mass gatherings are not possible during a global pandemic and what other tools are in our toolbox for uh, promoting a message in a way that can affect our, our campaign goals and which what channels still exist to us that are outside of mass mobilizing together. Um, so I think the coming back to those four questions about our goal, our audience, our target, and our constituency is what not only helps us decide what does the graphic say, who is featured, what does it look like, but also how is it being distributed. And the distribution plan can inform the art as much as the art can inform the distribution plan. So um, a lot of the organizing projects that Design Action has been working on over the last year has been during COVID has been for pieces that would go out through social media. Um, but we also understand that platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are run by powers that do not work for us. And um, that both digital security is an issue and also just um, our power to control those platforms is um, is something we have to be considering. So um, what I've been really enjoying is seeing how uh, large street murals or even posters that folks can tape onto their cars um, are still pulling imagery into spaces that don't require uh, a thousand people to pack a street in order to make a point. Um, and that that requires that much more planning to, to unify around 
a clear message that can be reinforced with a limited number of people being there. Thank you for that, Sabiha. Um, I guess this is a question for everyone. Before I keep just rolling asking questions, though, is there anything that either any of you would like to ask after each other or comment on anything that you've heard so far? It's more of a curiosity to see folks here have thought about it rather than a direct question. But um, Zabiha's uh, work and presentation really reminded me of um, Amilcar Cabral's uh, and what he talks about with the culture of resistance and culture of liberation and how we really need to be doing both and how it is so important to know how to wage ideological and cultural struggle to start um, to defend for like immediate things that we need to stop or pass immediately. But then he also talks about the culture of liberation, which is not attached to a particular campaign uh, or, or effort, but to that longer uh, trajectory of, of liberation. So I'm just curious and if folks have thoughts around like, what are the places, what are people doing, the cultural um, organizers and workers around that, around building and, and developing uh, cultural tools for that culture of liberation? Sabiha or Jenda, either of you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I can, I can speak to that. That's a really beautiful question. Um, and I think it, it kind of makes me want, it kind of uh, reminds me of the way um, Red Nation has taken up queer indigenous feminism alongside socialism, like to um, just articulate our politics in a way that centers um, caretaking and rebuilding kinship and understanding that um, the world we live in now denies us our kinship, not only with each other in terms of like internationalist solidarity, but kinship with our non-human relatives, meaning the earth, the land, the water, the plants, the animals. And, um, you know, again, like it can sound kind of wishy-washy, but we are also um, staunch materialists. And so we understand that these relationships of kin um, are actually um, our source of material sustenance, and they always have been. And these reciprocal relationships are the source of life, um, not only in our cosmologies, but, you know, they're scientifically observable, right? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that's what that made me think about and made me think about um, articulating these things side by side, and it made me think about um, I guess building the space um, needs to be rooted in um, something that's coming from a place of, of like genuine love. Um, like we can we can push back all day, but um, you know where is our source of energy coming from at the end of the day? Um, I'll add, thank you so much for that question. And just this part of the conversation is so juicy because I found as an art maker, it's been much easier for me to articulate visually what I'm protesting and to define what it is that I'm resistant offering resistance to, but it's much more difficult for me to visualize and articulate the what the world looks like and what I feel like and what my community 
um, looks like when it's thriving and when we've won and when, and on the other side of the struggle, what, what are our imaginations enabling us to depict? And that has been, uh, a real challenge I've been trying to lean into. And I'm really inspired by the work of artists like Fabiana Rodriguez and um, Melanie and Jesus at Dignidad Rebelde and Micah Bazant and others who are creating art that can be used in clear protest or mobilization, but also that comes from a, a bigger imagination around the way that we are working towards liberation. And um, yeah, I would guess I would invite you know everybody who's involved in People Get Ready 3 to spend some time kind of daydreaming about what it looks like and feels like when we have achieved our goals as we can articulate them now. Um, because once you kind of see something, you can't unsee it. And that... Um, that offering art to help us all see that more clearly is something that I would love. Um, I would love to build my skills in, which is still still work I'm trying to do. Thank you so much for that question, Marisol. I think it's such a beautiful and powerful one, and I think you know it also helps us remember that um, the kind of creative capacities that we have available to us, whether those get um, put into tactical um, articulation for a campaign or whether those get put into creating art or music um, of a wide variety or whether those go into forging, you know, creative or, or different kinds of relationships as, as Jen was, was talking about, um, are, that's so, so crucial to our own liberation. And I so appreciate you continuing to direct us toward the distinctions that we're trying to draw between resistance and liberation. Um, so I have one more thing I want to ask, and then I think we're starting to get some questions in. Um, so if you are out there and you have something you want to contribute to the conversation, please stick it in the chat now. Um, but I guess there's all, always the question of like, well, how, 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 right? These are great tools, but how? Um, so that's the question, how, um, from your own practices for the kinds of things that you think are useful contributions to the movements that you've been discussing today, how, how can we help encourage people to build those skills? What are some of the lessons that you all have learned or practices that you've come to think are really helpful in helping people develop their, their skills, whether that's like learning how to create beautiful graphics, or that's learning how to articulate their politics in a clear way, like a platform, or that's learning how to analyze the, the current conjuncture. Um, I'm wondering if each of you could just offer any tips that you have for kind of how to do that well. Um, and maybe we'll just go in the order that you started, just so people are kind of waiting to see who should go next. So Marisol, I'll start with you there. Um, I had a clarifying question. When we, when you say people, is it like society in general for those of us that are working with base building organization, is it our members or is it like our peers, fellow organizers? Choose your own adventure. Whoever you want to speak to is, is the right scale of people to be speaking to. All right. So I'm going to be speaking to what in Leftwards we call social movement leftist 
which is uh, folks that are like Jen and Sabiha in grounded in organizations that are working with oppressed communities or in support of oppressed communities to build power from below. And so to those folks, I would say humility, (laughs) humility to know that we don't know what we don't know. (laughs) And that most of us uh, actually don't have the proper training that we need in order to know how to get things done in order to know how to achieve liberation and that it is our responsibility to get trained, to get developed, and to a certain extent is also not our fault that the neoliberal project targeted the left, targeted cadre organizations and cadres like Asada Shakur, who was already uh, mentioned. We know her chance, we know her face, do we know she was a cadre member in a cadre organization, right? And so the neoliberal project has intentionally de-intellectualized our social movements. They made us believe that somehow knowledge, ideology belongs to the ruling classes. And so my push is let's be humble. Let's practice humility to know that there's so much out there that we don't know. And let's honor the shoulders of the people that we stand on, all the generations that have come before us and have sacrificed, that have actually wrestled with the same questions, have tested some of them, and have learned really key lessons. So the minimum we can do to honor them is to learn from them, be in conversation with them. And we can only do that if we actually study the political traditions they come from, what were the differences between the different traditions so that then we can begin to build our own. And most importantly, learning how to struggle with one another in a principal way. Learning that if we are to go out there in the world and struggle for unity amongst the different layers of the working class and oppressed peoples, that we need to first learn to do that amongst ourselves. Right. That we need to learn how to be in agreement or disagreement, but still be able to identify where do we actually unite and let that be our base of unity. I could continue, but um, I'll stop. (laughs) I loved it. I loved it. Thank you. Jen, how about you? Do you have any tips? Um, I just switched my speaker. Can you hear me? Okay, good. I hope this is better. Um, wow, I just want to thank Marisol for speaking to this um, anti-intellectualism that we're seeing come about. Um, I know that I see it within the Native community framed as like, you know, what can white men offer us? Like, what is like, you know, how is how is um European knowledge useful to us and we're constantly having to remind them that the so-called beards looked to indigenous people to formulate their theories of you know communism and to actually look for communism being practiced and um and so for us especially right now as the winter sets in it gets really cold here and I mean everywhere um we tend to focus on study groups um, and 
there we do have throughout the organization we have our own study groups um, at the Freedom Council level, but then we have like much broader um, study groups that you know anyone in the org can participate in, and even people who aren't um, cadre can participate in. And so just learning, reading, and discussing together, um, I know for me personally, is what helped me develop my politics. Just having that steady flow of dialogue is very important um, when it comes to helping people develop politically. And I think just reminding people that um, these intellectual traditions are ours as colonized people to claim and to and to have with pride is very important. And um you know, we're often looking at what um, what revolutionaries in the global south are doing. Um, we have a comrade who's, um, you know, currently in the global south, um, you know, making connections with indigenous people there. And it's beautiful um, to see how, um, you know, this, this attitude of anti-intellectualism is not even present there. And, you know, these are folks who... Um, you know, maybe don't even speak English or Spanish, you know, they only speak their indigenous language and that doesn't still doesn't prevent them from developing their politics and engaging and embracing our rich intellectual traditions as, um, you know, colonized people who are practicing socialism. So I think that's just um, that's something to keep in mind as we challenge these um, ideas that I, I believe primarily are existent in like the North American discourse. Like <laughs> I think um, in a lot of other places, they don't really have time um, to debate what is, you know, purely not European or, you know, in terms of anti-intellectualism. <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks, Jen. How about you, Sabiha? Do you have any best practices or tips? Yeah, yeah. I want to thank Jen and Marisol for emphasizing humility and political education that has been on the top of my mind throughout this conversation. And thinking about my own development as an activist and a designer and artist that um, how many mistakes I've made, how much learning that I've had to do and continue to do that um, and course correction that we need to make in real time when we get feedback from one another, um, like Marisol said, in a principled way uh, to be in joint struggle with one another. And so for me, um, one thing that specifically that we've put into practice at Design Action Collective is uh, really prioritizing building our worker-owned cooperative uh, amongst folks who are organizers and activists and connected to political work um, inside and outside our, quote, office of um, providing these services, that we also build in structured time with each other for shared political study. So, um, both kind of leveling ourselves off with each other around a shared language when we're talking about systems of oppression and uh, doing doing our homework, doing our readings, doing um, digging into texts that allow us to surface questions that we have for each other as we think about who we want to be working for and how we want to be serving uh, different organizations. And I I think um, one thing I'm most excited about specifically as a 
as someone who benefited so much as a young designer from political leaders really helping me put that learning into practice. Um, I really enjoy talking to other designers who are in the industry, in the graphic design, web making industry, especially in the kind of San Francisco, Bay Area, Silicon Valley tech community who are being politicized, have been politicized under the Trump administration and are looking to connect and support uh, campaigns for social justice and maybe newly politicized around this year's uprisings against police brutality and, and campaigns to defund the police and to help them check in with, with each other and themselves around where they're where they should be taking up space, where they shouldn't, where they should be um, uh, building their uh, relationships, where are they and where are where am I um, maintaining certain dominant narratives and where are we subverting them and really pushing ourselves to embrace our, um, our agency in resistance work. And, um, and so being part of conversations outside of our political spaces and in our larger industries has been kind of an interesting pathway or gateway for me to be helping pull other art makers, designers um, into these same questions. And, and I want to really celebrate folks who are kind of newly coming into this um, and without kind of shutting down any enthusiasm, but also by uh, reminding reminding us not to take leadership around something that isn't ours to lead, and to um, to make sure that we're contributing to campaigns that are already underway and finding where we're useful within them. Thank you, Sabiha. So maybe to close this session, um, I'm going to do a mashup of a couple questions that we got. Um, so one is thinking about um, sharing tactics that are particularly useful for building power in places where power has purposefully not been built either by design, you know, or not. Um, and then thinking particularly about how potentially mass media tools could be used um, in educating and training and organizing people and not having those be completely co-opted, you know, by our opponents on the right. So, you know, among those tactics that you're considering maybe are also some mass media tactics. Um, can we go reverse order or is somebody ready to go? All right. Sabiha, are you ready? I feel like that is just the question I'm still asking. So I was hoping somebody else could go, but I guess one thing that came to mind as you were talking was like, why do certain visuals uh, become viral for lack of a better term? And, and can we identify that or predict that and, and support the maximize our reach with, with knowledge around that. And I haven't been able to figure out a, a formula for that. It, there's so many factors at play around why hashtag Black Lives Matter took off the way it did and has transformed and evolved as a movement, as a um, as a rallying cry, as as the inspiration for art, uh, or why the butterfly as a metaphor for 
migration or the sunflower in environmental justice? Why these images and visual metaphors and messages have um, been been able to go so far, whereas other visual projects or written projects hope but maybe a lot more time was put into didn't actually get the legs that it that those did and i still feel like i struggle to anticipate why something will catch catch fire that way and um but what i do know is that if we put the if we lay some scaffolding around what we're doing so that if it does take off we know how to help control that narrative and it doesn't get co-opted or it doesn't get confusing. And I think, um, you know, Alicia and Opal um, and Patrice did a really good job of maintaining the language around hashtag Black Lives Matter when there was this all lives matter response to it. And the artwork that was created in a very leaderful movement continued to signal to each other using the black and gold color palette that they were part of the same thing, even though there was individual work happening that was unique to specific regions, specific communities. So um, that's that's what's been rattling in my head whenever a question like that comes up. That's helpful. Marisol, I think you have some ideas about building power, huh? Yes. So, um, well, first of all, power is one of those words like vision and strategy that we use um, to mean like 20 different things. So I'm going to assume that uh, the person asking the question meant power as in what we normally call people's power, the power of a community to determine and shape their conditions. And so that that question definitely hits close to home because I moved from California to Pennsylvania in 2016, precisely to invest in building what would later become a statewide organization, uh, PA Stands Up, in which we, our goal from the beginning was to build power in the regions of rural Pennsylvania that had been abandoned both by the left and the right. And that with Trump's campaign in 2016, the right realized, oh, there's all these voters out there in regions of the country that have been tremendously abandoned for different reasons. Let's dig in. So we said we should get ready for 2020. Let's go to key places. We actually did something similar to a conjunctural analysis that led us to identifying where to focus our energy. And so I moved my whole family to Pennsylvania to do that work. And what we found out is that, one, this idea that we had that power had not been built or power was non-existent in those regions was wrong. It took us almost a year of just visiting those communities, talking to different groups, different people to realize that power exists just because we don't have it uh, cohered around a particular project doesn't mean it's not there. Churches, all the congregations, different uh, small um community centers, organizations in those towns, in those regions, there is power, but it's usually spread out and it's usually also can be cohered around the dominant um, ideas and the dominant politics. So if you go to a quote unquote red town, like a town that uh, normally votes Republican, 
uh, you will see that power in the community is spread out, but it's cohered around the Republican values, right? And so there isn't like a cookie cutter where you do X, Y, Z and you'll build power. You actually need to go there, be there. You know, to know, you need to know the history of the community. What are the places where people are usually are already going, like like congregations, like churches, and then knowing the community and their history will tell you what their values are, which then tells you what could be the tactics that work. If you're in a community that really values religion, just because you don't like religion or don't have a way to integrate religion into your work or strategy, doesn't mean that you get to ignore it because that's where your community is. But let's say you're in a community that really values um, Halloween. <laughs> Do something on Halloween. Figure out what's your relationship to Halloween and how you put it out. That was a bit of a funny uh, example, but I think folks get the idea. Thank you for that, Marisol. And Jen, how about you? Do you have any thoughts about building power in places where there maybe hasn't been the same investment or about using the mass media um, as a as a set of um, tools to also leverage for left power building? Yeah, so I think about this a lot because I think about my community. Um, uh, so I, like I said, I'm Tewa, which is um, comprised of the eight northern pueblos in New Mexico. And um, we have a very distinct situation. Um, you know, we were colonized by Spain for like hundreds of years before, you know, the Americans showed up. So there is this deeply patriarchal, like, deeply Catholic conservative culture that exists within the Pueblos. And um, it's it's been pretty difficult because um, I feel like Pueblo people sometimes will go out of their way to position themselves against other natives who are thought to be more radical, you know, and kind of engage in this, uh, like engage in respectability politics. And uh, meanwhile, you know, like like every other Native people, we, we suffer from the same ailments. We're not exceptional, even if we think we are. And um, in particular, um, we deal with a lot of patriarchal violence, um, you know, things that I would say could even border on the femicide. And so um, I always wonder, like, what can we do to give people the confidence to build power because I think there's just a lot of fear. I know that there's fire in people's hearts. Um, and I hear people say radical things all the time, but there's this fear of being public about it. And so one thing I noticed is that there absolutely is um, a lot of power in um, mass movement building and in the, in the visual culture of it. So recently, I'd say within the past five years, MMIW, the MMIW movement has been embraced by a young Pueblo people. Um, and we are they're now beginning to understand that even when there's um, you know the killing of women within our own communities, they're identifying it as MMIW, they're identifying it as um, a part of this epidemic that is fueled by um, you know not only resource extraction or you know, the man counts in this often frame, but by the patriarchal violence that has been instilled to it, and it has been instilled, um, you know, via colonization. And so I think people are starting to, you know, connect things, they're starting to um, feel more confident when they see 
um, popular support being built around a particular movement. And although MMIW, unfortunately, has been co-opted, you know, by neoliberals, um, I really saw that as a hopeful start and step in the right direction. And I've noticed that since then, um, as movements gain popular support, people are more comfortable um, identifying with them, even if there might be scrutiny from, you know, tribal leaders or elders. Um, I think it's a really big big deal to have mass movements. And I think that in many ways, these mass movements um, are crucial to empowering people where there's no power, contrary to, you know, people framing mass movements as ignoring these rural places. I have seen personally just how influential and productive they can be. And so, um, and then also um, my Pueblo, um, um, Los Alamos National Labs built a top um, our sacred lands. Um, that's where the atomic bomb was built. And so there's um, a lot of nonprofits in place that exist solely for the purpose of quelling any significant movement building against the nuclear industrial complex there. And um, I think think as we continue to talk about these conversations in relation to, you know, other indigenous people in the area, like um, Navajo Nation, who, you know, has also been a victim of the nuclear industrial complex, but also people around the world who um, face the impacts of nuclearism, there's more popular support that I think will make people more comfortable tackling such you know, such a monster. <laughs> really, like, really, I see Los Angeles National Labs as the heart of U.S. imperialism, and um, yeah, I'm, and that's why I'm a part of the Red Nation, um, and that's why I see the the goals that we have in mind as absolutely um, like aligning with Pueblo core values. I always have to remind people that internationalism is traditional for us, you know, whether we're talking about the Pueblo Revolt or, you know, how we teamed up with um, surrounding um, Chicano communities. And we were, we were killing Americans up until the late 1800s, which is not that long ago. <laughs> so I'm just reminding people that, um, you know, these mass movements are something we've engaged in historically and something that um, we can continue to engage in. Thank you, Jen. Appreciate that. And for anybody out there who may not be familiar with the acronym, MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, um, and the efforts to really try to bring some level of accountability to the number of Indigenous women who have gone missing from communities across the the lands, across North America and across the world. Um, And we really do follow the Red Nation's leadership in advocating in that way. And so I appreciate you raising that. Um, Thank you all so much for being so thoughtful and being so clear in sharing tools and skills that that we can use moving forward. And I hope that it has inspired people who are watching um, and listening in to think about what else they want to build, what other skills do they want to develop, what do we really need to be in our best fighting form. So by way of um, closing things out today, I want to just say, you know, as we close People Get Ready 3, I cannot thank enough everybody who made today 
possible. I want to give very special thanks to the team of Dana, John, and Sean from Haymarket Books, who held down the tech and all the back end and all the logistics all day long. Particular thanks to Dana, who was our, our co-conspirator in the planning. Um, I want to give thanks to our captioner, Joyce, and uh, who is working with support from Jamie from Caption Associates. I want to thank our ASL interpreters, Brandon and Nora Joy. I want to thank our Spanish and English interpreters um, from the amazing Antenna Collective, Alexia, Jaja, and Jen. You must all be exhausted by now, but your labor was invaluable today. So thank you for that. Um, thanks to all of our presenters from Kiwi Ilefante, who jumped us off this morning, um, to this amazing closing panel of Jen, Marisol, and Sabiha, and everybody in between who shared their smarts and experience during the day. We will be in touch with everybody who attended um, today soon so that we can share resources and keep the conversation and the learning going. But more than anything, I hope that you all are ready to take the fight to the next level um, and to build the movements we need to shift the balance of power. So thank you all for joining us. Good night, YouTube. And um, we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.